It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Probably the most famous event in all of World War II unfolded on June 6th of 1944, D-Day. And many of us know that it took place on the beaches of Normandy and that General Dwight Eisenhower was over the operation. Both the place and the man are famous, right? But what many of us don't know is that Normandy wasn't the only option for a landing spot and that Eisenhower wasn't the original man for the job. Hey, this is Eric. This particular message is episode 57 in my Daily Thunder series entitled Spiritual Lessons from World War II. This series has been a lot of fun and deeply impacting on my life. If you would like to catch up on the other 56 episodes, go to ellersley.com forward slash daily and you'll find a link to the entire series. Now let's jump aboard the Queen Mary as it heads across the Atlantic in August of 1943. Let's knock on Winston Churchill's cabin door and join in on the discussion that will define which beachfront property in France will be memorialized forever as the famed landing grounds and which great general will become immortalized in the history books. For those of you that are getting acquainted with a, uh, a series on World War II, some people have never even thought about World War II, let alone gone through a series on World War II. I have a tremendous fascination with war history, which is such a funny, funny thing. I mean, how do I get interested in war? It's not like I want to pick up a gun and, and go to war at all. I, but I think it's the deep connectedness I have with the spiritual battle. And when I study World War II, I actually understand what I go through at a whole different level, and it's very helpful <laughs> to me. It gives language to it. Physical warfare is a mirror. It's, it's showcasing something that is uh, deeply spiritual for us. We have an enemy. And I still remember this well-known author that uh, popped his head out of the woodwork about 15 years ago, and everyone was following after him, and he, he had a chip on his shoulder. Uh, I wasn't a big fan, let's just put it that way, but he had a chip on his shoulder, and he was really upset with the Church of Jesus Christ for constantly using the war metaphor. And that they're always referring to this war and this battle. And I, I just want us to clarify right now, if you think that it's a metaphor, you're missing the whole point. This is real. We are actually in a battle. We are soldiers in reality. We have an enemy. We have weapons. The physical warfare is merely a manifestation in the physical of something that was first real in the spiritual. Isn't that an interesting thought? It is more real to understand spiritual warfare than it is physical. It's just that because most of us can't, well, we can't see it, we can't tangibly, uh, concretely understand it, we, physical warfare helps us rekindle an understanding that is lost to the human race, and that is that there is an ancient foe, and he seeks to work us woe. So this is something that is very uh, helpful to me, and I know that there's quite a few people that are, have been following the World War II series, and the interest is very high. It's, it's fascinating, the, the amount of people, and I don't know if it's mostly men or if women enjoy it at the same level. I get a lot of feedback from men. That's what's interesting. It's like, yeah, I really enjoy the World War II series. Uh, so this one uh, is, uh, the, the title, I don't think it's misleading, but uh, it's called The Spurning of Calais. And that's a, it's a city in, in France and uh, it's going to be symbolic, but it's actually a region that is going to be in, uh, in discussion 
which is the Pas de Calais, which is a, a region of France. And I'm going to liken that to us. Okay, I always do something like that, create some parallel uh, as I'm going through these stories. Because as I'm going through World War II, my, my main foundation is uh, Winston Churchill's memoirs. So he has thousands of pages uh, of memoirs. And he's a very verbose character, right? And he's in the prime minister position. So he's He's going through every granular detail. And so as I go through that, which I've gone through two or three times now, so we're, we're talking multiple layers of, of engagement with my friend Winston, and uh, there are certain things that will stand out to me. And it's just sort of the same way when I study Scripture, there's just certain things that the Spirit of God will lift out. And they're deep spiritual things for me, and that's how they end up, because I'm skipping over tons of stuff. I rarely have gone into any actual battle, like, and here's how the battle was fought. I mean, rarely ever will I, will I touch on that, which is strange, because that's usually what people like to talk about, the battle strategy, how they won, and how many people were lost, uh, when in actuality, I'm interested in a lot of different subtleties. So this is going to be an, an interesting angle, as you will see. Uh, <clears throat> so we're in August 5th of 1943, uh, Churchill is actually boarding the Queen Mary, and he is leaving England to head to Quebec, Canada, to meet with uh, President Roosevelt. And the key issue is they need to hammer out and finalize the details for something known as Operation Overlord, which in the landscape of World War II is actually probably the biggest known event out of the whole thing. Many of us know it as either the beaches of Normandy or D-Day. Okay, so this is like the big event. And so when you study World War II history and you act like you don't know that that's coming, it's really interesting how you see the buildup and the decision-making for all that is going to center around that. That is a huge issue all in all the years leading up to it as well. So right now we're 306 days out to the countdown to D-Day. And uh, so we're on the boat, basically, as we're going to start this, on the Queen Mary, on our way across the Atlantic, and we're going to go into literally the bedroom of Winston Churchill. Sorry, ladies. He's in bed, too, which is all the more awkward. Uh, but Winston Churchill's in bed most of, the, most of his memoirs. He's always doing his work out of his bed. And it, Roosevelt did it, too, that way. I don't know. That is so weird to me. I have to be walking. I'm moving, so I cannot relate to that dimension of World War II, where the leaders sit in bed and do their work, okay? So, uh, but June 6, 1944, which we're not to yet, okay, we're, that's not where we're at, is coming. And uh, that's, that's a significant day in all of history. So the first thing that is going to be discussed is the matter of location. Where do we attack? Because they need to create what's called a second front. Germany is in control of all of Europe. Nazi Germany is in control of all of Europe. They have just lost Italy. Okay, so that's a big event that has just unfolded, which is uh, a pretty sizable thing. Hitler does not like to lose anything. He has just lost his first battle in all of World War II, which was Stalingrad, to the, uh, to the Soviet Russians. And now he, the Allies have come up and seized Italy and deposed Mussolini. And so he's, he's feeling a little unstable right about now, which is, of course, the Allies' goal. He, they want to uh, destabilize Hitler. They want him to take 
his troops that are attacking the Eastern Front and, and hitting Soviet Russia and distract them somewhere. And that's called a second front or a third front, which is what they're actually creating. They're calling Italy the third front, and they've been working on this second front, which is the attack of the French coastline, I mean, since 1941. I mean, this has been literally in the, uh, the hopper since then. So it's taking a long time. The fact that it's not going to be till ni- June 1944 shows you how big of a, an effort this is. But they're trying to have Hitler take his troops away from uh, Russia, distract them somewhere else so that uh, Stalin can take them in Russia and they can win more easily in France and in Italy. They're trying to dilute the pool. You don't want someone taking all their strength and, and focusing it on you in any one place. You want them to be distracted. And so that's part of the tactical maneuver here. So they need to pick the location. The location is a part of the strategy. Now, I am going to liken us to two different things in this message. One is the location and one is the commander. So in this, they have two big decisions. One is where they're going to hit, and the other one is going to be who is going to lead the, the attack. Both of them are going to make the location famous, and it's going to make the commander famous. And there is a strange attraction in each one of us, even when we get into the kingdom of heaven, we want to be a part of the big workings of God. And so I'm going to just bring this to the surface because technically on paper, all of us just want to win France. We want to win the war. We want to get rid of Hitler. We just want, we want God to you know, win the day. We want the good guys to come out ahead, right? And yet, if you're in the military you, and you have a, an opportunity to participate and you know your name will be grafted in history, like just emblazoned with gold letters in history if you play a key role. It's funny how that baits us, okay? So I want to touch on that strange propensity towards being baited, towards wanting to be in the center of what God is doing. Instead of just seeing God accomplish what he is, and even if we are unseen and we're under the stage, we don't care. We just want God to win. And then suddenly, because it's our generation, because we are a player, we have this propensity to say, God, choose me which is not all bad, by the way. So the matter of location, which place will be made famous? It's interesting because literally the decisions they're making are going to make one place famous and the other place you won't even know about. Pa de Calais, you're like, what's that? That's exactly right. I mean, no one knows what that is, right? I mean, of course a Frenchman would, but I mean, most of us over here in America are like, what? But if I say the beaches of Normandy, you're like, oh, oh yeah, I know what that is. And when people go on tourist uh, trips to visit World War II sites, I mean, where do they go? They want to go to the beaches of Normandy. You see, something is going to be made famous here. And just imagine if you're Pas de Calais. Excuse me, but what am I, chopped liver? Hey, come on, choose me. So here's Winston Churchill. Each day I studied with the chiefs of staff the various aspects of the problems we were to discuss with our American friends. Remember, they're chugging across the Atlantic in the Queen Mary. The most important of these was, of course, Overlord. That's the big operation of attacking the shores of France. One morning on our voyage, at my request, Brigadier K.G. McLean, with two other officers from General Morgan's staff, came to me as I lay in my bed in the spacious cabin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there he is, guys. And after they had set up a large-scale map, explained in a tense and cogent tale the plan which had been prepared for the cross-channel descent upon France. So if you know your geography, 
you have Great Britain, it's the island, and then there's the English Channel, which separates it from France, which is on the other side. Then you have uh, the Netherlands and, and Belgium up there. And so that is, Hitler's on the other side, that 20 miles across, Hitler's staring across uh, the channel. And that's where they've been plotting and planning and trying to figure out how to make it across. But, and that sounds a little easier, even to Stalin. Stalin's like, why don't you strike? Why don't you attack? And Churchill's like, you have no idea what it means to cross water and attack. It's not just you know, like getting your troops out and walking across this territory. This is actually hard. You need a you need a, a landing place. You need harbors. You need some way of getting troops off of boats without getting killed. That isn't the easiest thing. And so Stalin can't figure that out. He's like, come on, if it was me, I would have attacked in 1941. He's really disgusted with Churchill over this. And Churchill's like, look, you know, if there's one thing I know, it's fighting on water. He was over the Navy in World War I. Okay, he knows this stuff. And Stalin all he knows is land. That's all he knows. He has a big blob of land. That's all he knows. And so Churchill's sort of like, excuse me, leave me to my skill. You stay in yours. But that's taking years to develop. Churchill is going to invent something called landing craft. And so if you've ever seen one of those World War II movies where they come across in these transports, and then you know the, there'll be almost like a, uh, a moat that will lay down and you can actually walk troops across or run troops across you're probably not walking in that situation and bring tanks out that's an invention of of churchill's he actually invents this for d-day and it's being used before that but it's actually an extraordinary part of world war ii so he's in his bed and his uh and he is discussing this crossing uh upon france the reader is perhaps familiar with all the arguments of 1941 and 1942 upon this burning question and all its variants, but this was the first time that I had heard the whole coherent plan presented in precise detail, both of numbers and tonnage, as the result of prolonged study by officers of both nations. The choice narrowed to the Pas de Calais or Normandy, and you're like, your Pas de Calais, and you're like, excuse me, but that, I, it's really neat. Thank you, uh, Churchill, for honoring me by selecting me for the shortlist, uh, that I could actually be considered for such an honor as this. And you see, this is an interesting thing. If, you, if you're years in the future like we are, you don't care if you're chosen or not, if Pas de Calais or Normandy is chosen, but if you're there and you're Pas de Calais, you care. You have an opinion in this, and it's good, you know, that you desire to be used by the Allies. That's wonderful. Thank you, Pas de Calais. So I'm going to at least give you somewhat of familiarity. So you have Pas de Calais, and I made it big, because it, it truly is a more muscular location. It is closer. You can see how close it is uh, across the channel. And so there's a lot of benefits to Pas de Calais. However, because of those benefits, guess where all the German fortifications are? Right there. Where do you think Germany expects to be hit? Yeah, right there. And so if that's you, you can sort of feel it where it's like you're a far superior option. You're a stronger opportunity for God to use. I mean, you've been working hard. You've been studying hard. You've been praying hard. You're ready to be used. And then you got the Normandy down there. It's a big, I mean, that's a, that's a long stretch across the channel. That's not, that's not a, an ideal spot. As a result, it becomes the ideal spot. Because this is not where Hitler is going to fortify. He knows that a small band of raiders could come across Normandy, but it's impossible to actually get all of millions of soldiers, which they're going to bring, into that spot. 
That, I mean, that's literally what Germany is going to think. They could maybe get 20,000 across, but not a million or two million across. So as a result, they are not going to defend it the way they will Pas de Calais. So guess where the Allies choose? Yeah, I know. This is really hard for those of us that are Pas de Calais. Okay, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult moment for us to, to swallow this. So the Evan Roberts moment, that's just what I call it. I remember studying the Welsh Revival and I was so moved by the character of Evan Roberts. And if you've ever studied the, the story of Evan Roberts, Evan Roberts is going to be a man who is not necessarily very social, but he loves Jesus. And he is going to hide away, I don't remember how many years it was, like five, six years. It was like some extreme thing. And he is just going to pray, and he's going to pray, and he's going to pray, and he's going to pray for revival. And then suddenly, something is going to happen. Evan Roberts just walks up onto a stage and is still, and you know, the crowd is just sitting there. And he could be silent for half hour, an hour, and then suddenly he speaks and the Spirit of God moves in such a powerful way. And every time Evan Roberts would just show up, people, and he would sometimes just sit in the front in his chair and not do anything, and everyone would wait with such expectancy because the Spirit of God was so intensely upon this man. And in history, you're going to look back and say, God used that man. And so I am, at the time, what was I, around 21? And Evan Roberts had a prayer, Lord, bend me. So guess what prayer I started praying? Lord, <laughs> bend me. Lord, uh, I know you may be looking to and fro throughout the earth for your next Evan Roberts, I just want you to know that I'm ready to be such a man. Okay, you follow me? This is an interesting moment. I remember I had another, he's, he's a guy who's a pastor now. And we were buddies and we were both talking about this. And he asked this question. He said, I'm, I think you and I are dealing with the same thing, Eric. <laughs> we both want to be the guy. What, what would you say if, to, to the question, Eric, Ryan, his name is Ryan, would you be willing to pray and be hidden and have someone else be the Evan Roberts in your generation and your name is never recognized as being a part of that great movement? Well, that's an inch. I didn't like that question. It was some, something about the question sort of bothered me, even though it was a good question. And that's what I want to put my finger on right now is this desire to be used. When we think of being used, we have sort of the glitter that comes out and we, you know, we, we cover our ideas with glitter and it usually has something to do with us being known and remembered. But are we willing to have all the glitter put away and for us to be used in the way God chooses? God will use us. You know that Calais was used in a profound way? You know where Dunkirk uh, is, is a key spot in World War II, the evacuation of Dunkirk, the miracle of Dunkirk. Well, Calais was also in that story, but guess what usually gets forgotten in that story? Calais. Calais was used to defend and preserve Dunkirk, but guess what's forgotten? Calais. And then the big attack on France, the second front that's going to go down in history is literally one of the most significant wartime maneuvers ever in all of history. And Calais will once again be overlooked. 
and yet it's critical in the war multiple times. Why? Because it's going to take all of Hitler's forces, and where's he going to go? He's going to go up to Pas-de-Calais. He knows that's where they're going to come across. So as a result, Calais is still being used, but it's being used as the decoy. <laughs> oh, I don't want to be a decoy. God, use me with glitter. That, that's, the, that's the prayer of the maturing Christian, where we are struggling with being leveraged by God as an instrument, but we want to be seen. It's a strange phenomenon that takes place in us. So the desire, I want to be used for revival. I want to be the guy that God selects to awaken the nations. I want to be something big. Choose me, Lord. So Winston Churchill continues, the former, Pas de Calais, gave us the best air cover. Can't you just see if you're Pas de Calais, you're like, yeah. Exactly. That's exactly what I was saying. I, we, we're supplying the best air cover by far. But here the defenses were the most formidable. Well, yeah, but we provide the best air cover. And although it promised a shorter sea voyage, this advantage was only apparent. While Dover and Folkestone are much closer to Calais and Boulogne than the Isle of Wight is to Normandy, their harbors were far too small to support an invasion. And if you're Pas de Calais, you're like, yeah, their harbors are too small. There's no way that, that Normandy can pull it off, okay? Most of our ships would have had to sail from ports along the whole south coast of England and from the Thames estuary, and so cross a lot of salt water in any case. Uh-oh, the spurning of Calais. I mean, we're, we're the perfect fit for this. I mean, have you ever had it where in your own thoughts, especially like in the area of relationships, you know, where you see there's someone that you like, and... There's you and there's someone else that they could be attracted to. And you're thinking, boy, I am the right choice. <laughs> and you know one of the best things that you can go through in those moments is to say, but God, I desire your best for that person. But it's, it can be hard because you know you're, it's funny, you rarely talk about your virtues to yourself. Usually you see what's wrong with you until you're in those moments and then you're like, I provide better air cover, Okay. <laughs> I know. I mean, there is no way. The beaches of Normandy have no air cover. It is so, that's a long saltwater crossing right there. You're going to have to use different ports. That is not a good thing. I supply this, 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 and this. The spurning of Calais. So this is Winston Churchill continued. General Morgan and his advisors recommended the Normandy coast. Oh, no. Which from the first had been advocated by Mountbatten. There can be no doubt now that this decision was sound. Normandy gave us the greatest hope. The defenses were not so strong as in the Pas-de-Calais. The seas and the beaches were on the whole suitable and were to some extent sheltered from the westerly gales by the Contentin Peninsula. God chooses the weak things of this world. There is no doubt, if you were to look at the two options, that Normandy is the weaker choice. In every regard, it does not boast the muscular strength of Pas-de-Calais. If you remove Hitler from the equation, of course you're going to go to Pas de Calais. But this is a battle with strategy. And God does something, oftentimes in war, that befuddles our mind. He chooses the weaker party. But, I mean, I have such muscular strength with such great air power, air cover. And yet, the allies are going to choose Normandy. 
As it says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. There's something in that that I have, I have pondered as well many times. I still remember I was on a missionary journey. I was on one of those buses with a whole bunch of mission, missionaries, and we were headed somewhere to do some, you know, something. I don't remember what we were doing, but I just remember the moment. And it was, a, it was a comment that God chooses the weak things of this world. And I remember having the process, because someone was asking me a question about it, uh, and am I willing to become a weak thing so that I can be used. Instead of become the strong thing, which I, of course, want to be, and I want all of you to think of me as a strong thing, but am I willing to take the weaker role, the weaker position, or even be deemed the weaker? Like in this, in history, Calais seems weaker. And God used Calais in the way that it was supposed to be used throughout World War II. But it goes down in history without a lot of glitter. And yet, God used it in the perfect way. The matter of command. So we talked about the matter of location. Now we have the same issue coming up in command, which is just, this is extremely fascinating. And this whole thing, uh, to me, is, it's such a power play because you have all of these, these nations and you have the United States and Great Britain which are leading the way, and this is an attack of, of a united front. And so you're going to feel this as the generals are being chosen for this job. Which man will be made famous? Whoever leads this is going to become one of the most famous men in all of history. So I'm going to give you two options, General Allen Brooke or General Dwight Eisenhower. What's funny is very few people even know about General Allen Brooke. So can you guess which way this is going to go? You're General Allen Brooke in this story. Okay? In other words, you are the ideal man suited for the job of crossing from England into France. Who's going to know that crossing better than someone from Great Britain? A general from Great Britain. You know who actually worked up in Pas de Calais and was part of the Dunkirk rescue? Uh Uh-huh. Alan Brooke. You're dealing with a guy who knows this territory, has fought in this territory, has lost many men in this territory. Not only that, but he's the selected one for it. He actually was picked early 1943 by Churchill, and he is the guy. He's been preparing for this all year. So Winston Churchill says, as the United States had the African command, it had been earlier agreed between the president and me that the commander of Overlord, remember that's what we're talking about here, should be British. And I proposed for this purpose with the president's agreement, General Brooke, the chief of the Imperial General Staff. I had informed General Brooke of this intention early in 1943. And so this is this guy's moment, all right? He's preparing. You could just imagine the butterflies. You could imagine the excitement. I mean, every general longs for these types of circumstances. Generals are a weird breed, by the way. I mean, the fact that they get excited about things like this, I mean, they are high-stress individuals, right? And they die of heart attacks uh, oftentimes. This is like intense stuff, that they, but they love it. They relish it. General Brooke has been a military man his entire life, and now his assignment comes. This is what he's prepared for. Winston Churchill continues. Now I've skipped quite a bit, and now we end up at this. 
As the year advanced and the immense plan of the invasion began to take shape, I became increasingly impressed with the very great preponderance of American troops that would be employed after the original landing with equal numbers had been successful. And now at Quebec, I myself took the initiative of proposing to the president that an American commander should be appointed for the expedition to France. Now, remember who you are in this story? You're General Brooke. Okay, this is like what you're built for. This is your assignment. Okay, you've even been given the assignment. Have you ever had that where you have a very clear sense that God is doing something in your life? And then God will have a detour for you? This is quite the moment for a man named General Brooke, an amazing man who you might not know. Why? Because he lost his assignment here, and it wasn't because of a character flaw on his part. I informed General Brooke, who had my entire confidence, of this change and of the reasons for it. He bore the great disappointment with soldierly dignity. So that's the question I want to present to you. How do you handle it with soldierly dignity? This is hard. I mean, this type of a thing is a, is, touches us in a very unique way. John 21, 18 through 22. This is Jesus speaking to Peter. Do you remember after uh, the fishing expedition, he's risen from the dead. They have this conversation of, you know, feed my sheep. Uh, and then he goes into this. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This, Jesus spoke, signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, who's John. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Boy, have I repeated this to myself so many times. It is so easy to look out there and see Normandy and go, God, but wh why would you choose Normandy? It's so easy to look across and see Dwight Eisenhower glittering in the sun and go, but God, why did you pass me over for that? Why, why do you choose for me? I mean, Peter's going to die upside down on a cross. He is actually being prepared for his martyrdom here. What about him? That's nothing to you. You focus on following me. That's not your business. You allow me to lead your life. So key line, what is that to you? You follow me. Your job is not to give the marketing campaign for why the allied forces could come across and use your beaches. It's not your job to command the allied invasion unless God gives it to you. And if he gives it to you and then takes it away from you, <laughs> hey, you handle it with soldierly dignity because your desire is greater than your own self-glory and your own self-use. Your desire is that God would use you precisely how he has assigned your life to be used. He knows why he created you. Your job is to say yes. And to do that, you have to humble yourself. And I'm speaking to myself in the same, same breath on this. For each of us, we have to bend. The goal, win back France. Isn't that our goal? It's not be used, be my, have my beaches used. It's not, oh, that I would command. It's that we would win back France. So in the kingdom of heaven, every knee would bow. 
That's what we desire, isn't it? That every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, hasten the day that our faith would be made sight. Lord, that you would be seen, that your glory would be manifest in this earth. Well, Eric, I hear your prayer, but are you willing for me not to use you in that moment that would cause you to glitter and for me to use the beaches of Normandy? Are, are you open to that? If, if you knew that I felt that was the best plan for winning this war, would you, would you be okay with that? Where's your soldierly dignity in this? Are we willing to allow Normandy beaches to be used and General Dwight Eisenhower to be chosen? And we still fight. We still stand strong. We still stand bold and say, yes, Lord, because you will win your way. And if you want me to be used in obscurity, so be it. But what if God chooses Normandy instead of you? But what if God chooses Eisenhower instead of you? Are you okay with God being in charge? Remember the older brother? Remember when the prodigal comes back and the older brother didn't handle it so well? Mm -hmm. Not the soldierly dignity we're talking about. Remember the upset workers where you know, they're working all day and these guys come in at the last hour, last minute it seems, and they get the same paycheck? You see, there can seem to be these injustices, and God even brings them up in Scripture. It's like, how you doing right now? Are you okay that I'm merciful to the prodigal? Are you okay that I'm going to pay this guy a full wage? It's my business, isn't it? Will you trust God to do his business and to do it his way? You see, we want to come in with our opinions, and we can actually find offense. We can be hurt. We don't have the soldierly dignity of Brooke. Our goal is not to go down in the history books. It's to have Jesus go down in the history books. Our job is to lift high his name. And if we are overlooked, if we die in obscurity, that isn't our job. Our job is not to maintain our reputation. Our job is not to maintain our uh, known, uh, the fact that we are known throughout the history books, that we are known, uh, biographies are written about us. Our job is to lift high his name. Let's remember that. Jesus Christ says, what is that to you? You follow me. Father, bend us. Lord, purify that motive at the core of our being. And today, I just pray that fresh water would flow in that point of our existence where we would have a pure desire for you to be seen and for you to be known. Lord, we desire to be used. We do. But we desire for your ends to be accomplished, even if it is done differently than we think it should be or in a way that doesn't necessarily promote our reputation. Lord, this is for you, for your kingdom, for your honor, and your glory. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. 
We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.